Please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Can you believe it? We're in chapter 20 already? Wow, this is a nice, long, excellent gospel, but wow, we're in chapter 20. When you start it, you wonder, are we ever going to get to chapter 20? We did. We got to chapter 20. It's the, the parable of laborers in the field, the workers in the vineyard. And it's the, uh, Matthew is the only one who records it for us. It's not in any of the other Gospels. So we're on our own in a way. I couldn't kind of go to the other Gospels, see if there were other hints. It's Matthew. So it's, it's neat that um, each Gospel has its own little neat um, aspects. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16. But as you'll see in the message, we have to do some context work. Um, so, for instance, you can look at Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, and you're not going to go too far off if you just pluck it out of context, for it's by grace or saved through works. I mean, not by works, uh, through faith, not of yourselves. You're still going to do okay. You should go to the context, but you're still going to get the gist of it. This passage, if you just took it on its own without context, you'd be in a little more trouble. So we're going to spend some time looking at context so we can make sure we understand exactly what Jesus is intending to teach us through this wonderful, crazy, and interesting, and shocking parable. So turn to Matthew 20, and let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. That ends the reading of God's holy word. May bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Now many of us, I should venture to say, have had this experience. We start at maybe a new job. And the old guard, who's been there for uh, quite a long time, much longer than we have, they take every opportunity to remind us that we're the newbie here. Ever in that situation? That we haven't put in our dues yet. 
And the longer you're at that job, the longer you realize you may never be considered a part of the, really a part of the staff. You're always going to be the newbie, the new kid on the block. Now, I've had three pastoral calls in my adult life in each new community and in each church. In one way or another that I've been in, they let me know I'm not local. I haven't put in the time. Now, when I lived in Dwaynesburg, this was rough. When I lived in Dwaynesburg, I remember, I think it was a men's prayer breakfast from all different churches got together, and uh, they asked me to do the devotion that day. And there was an older gentleman, and I believe he, uh, he ran an antique store and had like a little farm, but who didn't over there? <laughs> and um, he said to me, yeah, he goes, I'm an outsider. My wife and I have only been here for 35 years. <laughs> and I remember as the new pastor there going, rut row. But that's, that's really the way of the world, isn't it? For better or for worse. It's a fact of life this, on this side of glory. And that's what makes the parable Jesus teaches here in Matthew 20 so surprising and literally even shocking. The landowner in the parable acts in a way that completely turns the normal way of doing business around on its head. That's why I would name this, this sermon, I don't think I, I put a different name there, but I would actually call it the upside-down kingdom because God's kingdom is very different than the kingdom of earth, of, of this earth. If there's anything the parable teaches, we know it teaches that. But there's a principle here that we would miss if we just went with the headings of our modern Bibles because you notice it says it kind of like starts a new pericope here, a new section right, in chapter 20, when actually, this isn't a new section at all, it follows up in chapter 19, where where Jesus deals with the rich young ruler, and then Peter's questions about that. Because when when Jesus gets done speaking to Peter about um, the rich young ruler and and how hard it is for the um, wealthy to be saved, um, he says this in verse verse 30 of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's the principle Jesus is going to now illustrate. He gives that as the heading, then he, then he illustrates it, and then lo and behold, in case you think I'm making things up, he ends with it. Look at the end of the parable again, verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. That's the principle now that Jesus is going to illustrate by telling a story, a parable. Now remember, parables aren't necessarily to clear things up for everybody. We remember earlier in Matthew's Gospel, parables are actually given to hide the truth from some. The stiff-necked, those who would use the truth in an evil way, those who refuse to repent. Um, But it does open up the truth for those who what? For those for whom God has opened their eyes, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we have to see. That's why sometimes cracking the code on these parables is not as simple. Remember, almost every time the disciples kind of come up to Jesus later in the, in the room in the house and go, uh, what? <laughs> what does this mean again? And then Jesus has to say, listen, how are you going to understand any parables if you don't understand this? So I want you to see that. And I want you to see, uh, I'm going to tell you first, I'm just going to tell you right out uh, up front, what I believe the message is of this text of this parable, and then I hope by the grace of God I will demonstrate that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. So we see this when we look at the passage. The king of the kingdom, we know who that is, Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven teaches us that his kingdom is a kingdom of sovereign grace and not of merit. 
That's the the main point of this parable. And if we miss that, we miss the whole thing, the whole enchilada. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of sovereign grace and not of human merit. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. And all I'm going to do, we're going to go right through the text, uh, work it through. We're going to see the principle stated. We're going to talk about that for a few moments. Then we're going to see the principle illustrated. We'll get into some of the details of the parable. And then last of all, and we'll take a little time for application, we will see that Jesus, we'll see the principle restated. Jesus restates it to close it as a punch of the passage. So let's take a look at the first one, and that is the principle stated. And I'm just going to spend just a few moments going backwards into the text of chapter 19. And I'm going to read it just to remind you where we're at. If you remember, uh, I'll summarize some of it. Um, the rich young ruler, who, by the way, was a ruler in the synagogue, so he was a Jewish ruler. He was young. He was wealthy. Remember, he comes to Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And you remember Jesus says, you know, well, you know the commandments. Obey them. And, and then he says, which ones? And then Jesus outlines the second table of the law, and he says, these I have kept since I was a youth. And then Jesus says, okay. That you only lack one thing. Just, just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says he was downcast because he had great wealth. And what we see in this text, it was interesting as Pete brought it out for us last week, it really hit me hard. Jesus was actually showing him in a very kind and yet firm way, you haven't kept the commandments. Because what's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. And this man's God was money. And he was willing to leave the one true God for the God of money. So he, in in effect, did not keep the commandments. Jesus was definitely using the law to show him his need for himself. And the interesting thing is, that's when Peter, that's when the disciples, oh, then Jesus makes the comment. We wanted to read it, I'll just mention it. He makes the comment how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, here again, I don't know if you've picked this up. This is pretty shocking. The disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? That, to me, is confusing, coming from this culture. Why would they ask who then could be saved? Because what's our normal view? At least me as a middle class, blue collar, my dad was blue collar, Mason. At least my view of rich people is, amen. You're you're darn right that they can't fit through the eye of that needle because the only way they got their money is they must have been greedy, they must have been shady, they must have been deceptive, they must have held some people down in order to get ahead. You know, that's our thoughts a lot of times in our culture. For right or for wrong, I'm not saying it's a true thing, but we often think like that. So I wouldn't be like, well, then who could be saved? I'd be like, yeah, I could get that. So why would the disciples be so shocked with that? Well, we have to go back to their culture. And if even in the Old Testament scriptures, what did it tell you? God said in the Old Testament, he made promises and and he also made warnings. His promise was, if you obey this law, if you do what I tell you, I will bless you. And when he said, I will bless you, he mentioned material blessings. You will be blessed in what you do, and, and, you know, and your labors will produce fruit and, and vineyards. And so, and of course, you don't do what I say. Cursed you will be. And he gives the list of things that will happen. So the assumption is, if this guy's he's a nice ruler he, he, of the synagogue, he's wealthy, he must be blessed by God. You get that? So God's hand must be upon him. So if he can't be saved, 
or, and then, then who can? So we have to understand, that's what's going on here. And then Peter, the spokesman always, everybody else, we have filters, right? Peter had niente, no filter. And he says, well, what about us? We left everything for you. You know, like a little kid, well, what about us? And you remember what Jesus says? Again, I'll paraphrase. You can check up on me. He basically says, uh, don't worry. He says, you who have followed me, you will sit on 12 thrones and you will, you will um, rule over or judge, sorry, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, as a matter of fact, not only are you going to get rewarded, but for all those folks, wherever you are, throughout the annals of time from here on forward, whoever leaves houses and mothers and wives for my sake, they're going to receive their reward and, in the end, eternal life. But then Jesus climaxes the whole thing with but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So that's important for us to see right off the get-go, the context before we jump into anything else. Because here's the issue that Jesus is teaching the disciples, Peter, and then through them, us here this morning. Many who are first, that is, those who are regarded and revered highly in society, those who are looked up to, those who have a high position, those who are privileged, they will end up actually being last, while many who are the least men in the world, women and children, the despised, the poor, the weak, the least, those without status, like the little children he brought forward, remember, and said you have to become like in order to enter the kingdom, they will be first in his kingdom it turns the whole situation. And it's interesting, as he opens up that principle, he says many, who at the beginning, who are first will be last. And so in other words, it doesn't mean no rich people will ever get saved. We know Abraham was a man of wealth, and thankfully he's the father of all who believe. But it's saying that God's kingdom does not work upon the same principles as the kingdom of man. It's not a matter of earning one status. It's a matter of actually coming and saying, I have nothing to bring to the table. No matter what my standing, no matter what my lineage, no matter what my pedigree, I come to Jesus, you know, um, empty. And rely alone on the mercy of God. That's what he's saying. And so we have to state the principle in order to understand what he's illustrating. Otherwise, I've seen, because you have to understand, I've read many commentaries, I've listened to many sermons, I've talked to many people, and boy, a lot of people go running in many different crazy directions. And it was very important to say, okay, let's see, what is Jesus illustrating? So we'll stay on the track. We don't want to get off the track. So this is the principle stated. First will be last, last will be first. So now let's take a look at the principle illustrated. We'll actually get a little bit into the um, parable itself. And again, let me summarize for time's sake and we'll get into some of the details in a moment. It's, the scene is, is in, in ancient times uh, a very uh, common scene is that when it came time, this man who owns a vineyard, it came time for the grapes to be picked. And you know once that time comes, you need extra labor because it's got to be picked right on time or it's going to ruin. You won't make your crop in time. That's number one. And so you would have folks who would go to, the, to, to whether the marketplace or somewhere in the town hall, which would kind of be like a job fair for us today or somewhere where you would go, unemployment agency, and you would wait to see if you can get work for that day. That's why it was 
the, the ordinary work uh, wage for an unskilled labor back in those days, I, I hear, was one denarius for a full day's work. And so the landowner goes to the, to the um, center of the town there, and he sees folks who are unemployed. And so graciously, he says, come on, I will, I will pay you a denarii if you work today. He comes very early in the morning. And they agree. They say, yeah, that's a good deal. I'll be able to bring some uh, money home and feed my family and my kids. This is a great opportunity. So they go. About three hours later, he returns back, and he's like, what? there's more people still hanging around. I got work to do. Come on. I, I'll tell you what. You come on my field, and this time he says, and don't worry, I'll give you what is right. He doesn't give a particular price. He just says, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll reimburse you for your time. He does this, what, two other times, three hours later each time, and he still keeps finding people until he goes the last hour. There's only an hour left to work before daylight or whatever it was at that time. And he comes and he says, what are you guys still doing hanging around? Why are you here? And they say, we, nobody's still, no one's hired us. So he says, I'll tell you what, come on, I'll even take you, let's go. And he brings them and they go to work in his field. Then what happens? The end of the workday, that's when the real surprise comes in. When it's time to settle up and pay the workers, the landowner tells his foreman this, verse 8, I believe it is, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So now listen, you can imagine if you're on that line. You've been sweating and you've been in the heat. You've been working all day. And you see in the front of the line, those guys have only been working an hour getting up one nice clean denarius. You're like, oh, man, I'm in the money. You know, you're starting to think, let me see, let me calculate. If they only got one denarius, I've been here for 12 hours. That's 12 denarii, or whatever it's going to be. They were thinking, I'm in the money. But, of course, they get up there, and what do they get? The same as everyone else. One denarii. So what they do, it tells us in the text, they do what people often do today as well. They formed a little union. <laughs> they said, come on, let's get together. We're going to go confront the landowner. And this is what they do. This is their complaint. This is, it says they grumbled, right? Look at verse 12. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of day. In other words, it's not fair. And how many of us who've had children haven't heard this one? We were here first. Man, I hear that one. I used to hear that one a lot. We, walked long, we worked longer, we worked harder, and they get the same as us. But the landowner, notice, said to one of them, and, and so far in Matthew's Gospel, when you hear someone, Jesus, or someone in a parable saying, friend, <laughs> it's usually a rebuke. It's not how we would be like, hey, friend. You know, like English people to go, my good man, my good fellow. You know what they're going to say after that. They're going to rip you up. Well, that's what's happened here. He's saying friend. But now watch what he says. I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I like that. Take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? And the word there in the Greek is, or do you have an evil eye? And that means, uh, that, that phrase means, are you jealous? So here's the punchline, if you're looking for one. 
The punchline is this. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Well, then take your pay. I've done you no wrong. I've kept my word. I've been absolutely fair in my dealings with you. Have I not? And then the bombshell. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right? And that's the problem even in our society and sometimes, unfortunately, even the church. Everybody in the world, even animals, has rights today. Just saying. But here we see the only one who really has ultimate rights is God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has the right to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. We just read it earlier from Romans, didn't we? To have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he is free to distribute his grace as he will. He is the king. That's the important thing to see here. He has the right to be generous to whom he wants to be generous to. In his kingdom, no one will be there because they earned it. No one in the kingdom will be able to boast and say, well, I worked harder than so-and-so, and look at me. I earned it. Because think about it this way. How long did the last people hired work? One hour. <laughs> That's it. Barely wrap up. They did hardly, we would say they didn't break a sweat. And yet how much did they get? The same amount. Equal. Now look, it's important to see this. This is a parable. It's a story. That means not every little point is analogous to a truth. There's a main point to it. Maybe there's a few sub-points that are analogous. But Jesus is not teaching here. Listen, this is where people get all mixed up and they start going weird directions with the parable. Jesus is not teaching. Some people work a little bit to get to heaven. Some people work a little bit more to get to heaven. Some people work a whole day to get That's not the point. The point is we don't work at all to get to heaven. It's just the illustration is workers in a vineyard. And for those of us who especially are, are, are laboring here in Atlantic City, we understand what a gift it would be to go to um, people who are unemployed and say, I have work for you. The point here, the emphasis here is the gift. It's the work. It's, guess what? You would have had to, listen to these guys would have had to go home. You have to understand this. It's powerful. And I know as a father, as a husband, as, as a provider, to have to come home at the end of the day after standing around the marketplace say, honey, I... Sorry, kids can't eat again today. I couldn't get work. You understand what's going on here? This, this uh, landowner is generous. He's gracious. Especially those last guys. He didn't need them. Someone has rightly said, this is the parable for the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? What did he have to offer? Nothing. He was hanging. He was getting his just desserts of punishment. And he turned to Jesus and he basically asked for mercy. He did ask mercy. He said this, remember me. What, remember my goodness? Remember how much I labored for you? He doesn't want to remember those things, does he? Just remember me. And your mercy is what he's saying when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus said, sorry, you didn't work enough. No. He said, I tell you the truth, this day you'll be with me in paradise. God's kingdom 
is a kingdom of grace, not merit. Just one cross reference. We could go on on the cross references, but I will spare you. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, we read that God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Jesus doesn't teach anything different here. When he gives a, a child, puts a child up front and says you have to be like him, what's he saying? You have to just simply trust me. Take my word. Believe me. Humbly come to me. Fits perfectly with all the scriptures and with the gospel. And notice the landowner puts his finger on the grumbler's real issue. What's the real issue here for the grumblers? They're envious because God is gracious, or landowner in this case, is gracious to the undeserving. Isn't that the issue? They don't deserve a denarius. How how could you give them a denarius? That's not right. Sound familiar? There's a parable in another gospel. Maybe this, this particular parable isn't taught other places, but there's another one that I could think of, and it's the parable of the lost son. You remember which character was a little bit envious, was a little bit upset? was the older brother, wasn't it? Here, the younger brother had spent his time partying, wasting his life, doing horrible things, ends up broke, which, which happens when God leads us to repentance and, and draws our hearts back to him. And he realizes, hey, my, my, my dad's servants are living better than this. I'll go back and ask if he could just hire me to be a servant. And you remember, he goes back. He says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And you remember the grand reception. Put a ring on his finger. Right? Put a robe on him. My son was lost. Now he's found. Let's have a... Then, then, then he says this. And this is what the older brother really flipped out about. Let's have a party and celebrate. Let's kill the fattened calf. The one we've been fattening up for such an occasion as this. Like the special calf. Let's cut him up and let's feast. For the son of mine was lost, now he's found, he was dead, and now he's alive. And so they're in there, and it says in the text, I love telling us believers this because sometimes we get a little stiff. They were dancing. They were having a party because the son had come home. But there was one, out, there was one person who didn't come to this party. He was outside, and he was doing this. And he was refusing to come in. That was the older brother. And if you remember when the, the servant comes, and I think the father later says, you know, what's going on? Then you see the real heart of the older brother, don't you? All these years I've been what? Slaving for you. That's how he saw his relationship with his father. And yet not even once did you give even a young goat for me and my friends to enjoy ourselves. And what does the father say? Basically, what is wrong with you? You're my son. Everything I have is yours. Basically, all you had to do was ask. But we had to rejoice and we had to celebrate because you're brother was lost now he's found and so we see here even in matthew's gospel the pharisees were upset because jesus was receiving who tax collectors prostitutes fishermen who are like you know who are they just common everyday fishermen And when Jesus picked his happy band of followers, none of them were studying to be rabbis. (laughs) None of of them were in line in the Pharisees to be uh, uh, scribes or teachers of the law or Sadducees. What's interesting is, none of them were first in society, were they? They were last. The ones like, eh. 
Justin Mope, a British pastor, puts it this way. I love it. He says, grace is the great leveler. The shock in the New Testament is that God will give his heaven equally to Paul the Apostle as to the thief on the cross, to Billy Graham equally to the repentant murderer, to the person here who has been a church warden for the last 50 years and has led six Bible studies a week as to the person who just became a Christian yesterday. And that's exactly how Jesus concludes this parable, and that's the last thing I want to bring out. The principle restated. So the punchline, the finishing, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This shouldn't be surprising to those of us who've been going through Matthew's gospel because Jesus teaches us many paradoxes. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. You remember the one paradox was he who tries to save his life will what? Lose it. Whatever loses his life for me and the gospel's sake will find it. That's a paradox. It seems like it's working opposite, right? Upside down. The other one is you want to become great in God's kingdom? You want to get high? Then you've got to bow low. You want to be exalted? You've got to humble yourself. Because if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. Right? That's a paradox. And now we have this great lesson. Last will be first. And the first will be last. And listen, <laughs> excuse me, how often have we heard this verse quoted? And when do we always hear it quoted? I've been in the church alone. I've been saved since 1986. Some of you may be longer. But almost every time I go to a, it just happened the other day between us two. I won't say who did what. But at a potluck supper, what happens? Oh, no, no, you go first. Why? Because the first will be last and the last will be first. And I've said it myself. So I, I'm, but that, so, and that's basically all that we know of that verse, isn't it? It's pretty much just for potluck suppers. None of us say, hey, I wonder what that really means. And I think that's what's really neat about taking some time out to actually look at this passage to see what it actually means. And as we see that, um, I want to bring up something that Spurgeon said. And this is powerful application. He says, This parable should give us such a view of God's sovereign grace as will close down the complaints department permanently. Isn't that good? I think that's awesome. How often we worry about God's goodness and grace to other people, and even as believers, we get jealous. Instead of rejoicing and joining the party, hey, pass, pass the piece of that fattened calf. Yeah, sure, I'll dance. Whether it's late in life that you come, late in history, late in line in terms of your place in society, late in terms of your family lineage or your vocational standing, when you come to Christ, you're first in that sense. He receives you fully. Eric Alexander, a great Scottish preacher, Presbyterian, says this, The gospel is the great leveler. Sound familiar? The other gentleman said something similar. It takes the high and mighty and brings him down to the level of the beggar. It takes the skillful academic and brings him down to the level of the illiterate. Because the grace of God is the only thing that will save either or any of them. See, Peter had to understand, guess what? That same grace that is needed to save that rich young ruler is the same grace, Pete, you're going to need. by my mercy that you're going to sit on thrones. Are you kidding me? 
And I don't need to waste too much of your time looking through the gospel how Peter messes up. Do I? Same grace is needed. parable that Jesus teaches here is not only a stinging message for those who think there's something in this world, like Pharisees and others, those who refuse to humble themselves and come to Christ in childlike faith, but it also gives a gentle warning to those who have trusted in Christ and who are now following him by faith. That's you and me in this room. We need to rejoice in God's goodness and grace toward others and not feel slighted or jealous when God shows his, mother, his mercy to other sinners, no matter how worthy we deem them or how late in the game they come. A few examples. I've had this happen in my own life, so this is how I know. It's not just some fake example. Christianity has been in my family for generations. Who does this first-generation Christian think that they are? Now, I never even knew what that was until I went to a certain community where Christianity had been in their their, their families for many generations, which I praise God for, but you could see they were kind of like, one of them even said, new generation Christians shouldn't uh, be pastors or elders. They're not, you know, I'm like, yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? Like half the people of the New Testament that you read about? <laughs> like these crazies, you know what I mean? Um, but maybe all of them in one sense. That's right. No. And sometimes we could say this too, oh, Sure, this person was a notorious rebel rouser. They come to Christ and they're celebrated and encouraged in this church to do ministry and people get behind their ministry. When I've never wandered far from the fold, I faithfully taught Sunday school and they, re- they receive this great welcome like they're some kind of hero and, and I don't get any attention or encouragement. That can happen too, can't it? And how many churches, unfortunately, is there this attitude, you're the new guy, so just kind of stay in your place until you pay your dues. Listen, we should meditate on, we should never take for granted, and we should constantly take to heart the fact that God's kingdom is a kingdom that runs on sovereign grace, not on human merit. And that's true whether we've been raised in a Christian home or we've been, and we've been serving him for years or we're saved out of a sinful, out of sinful ignorance with a radical testimony like some of us have. We've all been brought into the kingdom if we're in the kingdom by that very same amazing sovereign grace of God. Now I'm going to close with this. And I try to not do this very often because I don't want to be accused of, I think it's called nepotism. Um, But I was looking over my son Caleb's application because he's hoping to go under care of the New Jersey Presbytery. He's been working with Pete to do this, to get this accomplished. And he ran by me his application just for some of the, uh, to check some of the information and kind of do a little readover for him. And I obviously know how my son came to faith because I was there when it happened and he was only five years old. Um, So, you know, I thought I would just read his testimony over and I was actually so blessed by what Caleb wrote. I was so surprised by God's grace and it just really touched me because you, some of you know I have a crazy testimony. I give a wild story how I came to Christ and so many people say, oh, I wish I had a testimony like yours but my conversion was kind of quiet. I found out about Jesus when I was a little kid and believed in him and don't have like a crazy story like yours. But the beauty of this story was 
the hero of, of this testimony was Jesus. Just like the hero in my testimony is Jesus. So I'm going to read just a little piece of it. I asked for permission from him. Don't worry. When he was little, he said to me, he goes, you need to ask for permission because I started using him a little bit. And, and anyway, so I got the permission this time. But this is what he wrote, and it's very powerful. I can't remember a time when I wasn't saved. I put my full faith in the work of Jesus on the cross for my salvation. I stand in awe that God would choose me to be his servant and more shockingly, his adopted son. I know it's sort of a cliche in Christian circles to say, why would God choose me? But honestly, it is something that I just can't get over. And it is so important to me that I often need no other inspiration to serve him. I guess that makes sense. It's the basic gospel. While we were still sinners, God loved us. I think about it so often that it is what really hurts me the most when I fail to serve him or neglect him. That and that fact that, that he has mercy and he forgives me and that uh, sometimes I take advantage of it and showing lack of appreciation uh, in my actions of this, the gift of gifts, gifts to be the son of the living God. And he says, I love God for what he did for me, for loving me first. I don't think there's anything I could do to earn or lose his divine favor and attribute nothing to my own salvation. Brothers and sisters, what is this but acknowledging that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of sovereign grace and not of works? And so what Jesus is teaching us here is delight in it, revel in it, praise God for it, and don't ever begrudge it being shown to others, but embrace it when you see even the lowest come to faith even if it's at the end of their life. Praise God. Because as Jesus said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's remember that. That's the kingdom that you and I are in because of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Pete's going to start with this, so actually let me end with this for this week. Right after this passage, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed He's going to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. It's only because of that that God can be just and forgiven us and given us a reward. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible parable. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing it with us and teaching us. We, we fall at your feet. We worship you. You are the Lord, our God. You are our Savior. And we just pray, Jesus, that you would continue to develop in us hearts of gratitude. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we have an evil eye, and that, that we begrudge your grace and compassion to others, or that we judge others and, and as if we earned it or we deserve it. But Lord, let us give it freely. Let us pray for even the least and those furthest off, begging you, Lord, to do in, in their lives what you've done in us. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org.
www.ocrc.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Sandra Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.